Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me this week on Tia Time. We'll get to the show in just a moment. First, I wanted to say thank you to all of you who have posted a rating on Apple Podcast. Apple Podcast is an app that can be downloaded to your phone or computer. The algorithm it uses allows more artists and art enthusiasts like yourselves to hear about the show. So if you haven't posted a rating yet, do it now. Thank you. On with the show. Welcome to Tia Time with Artists, the weekly podcast where we discuss the methods, challenges, and real-life experiences of living our creative dreams. What kind of creative warrior are you? Musician? Filmmaker? Painter? Choreographer? Poet? Sculptor? Fashionista? Let's talk about it right now. I'm your host, Tia Imani Hanna. Today's guest on Tia Time with Artists is a wonderful, prolific promoter, director of programming, Detroit Downtown Partnership, and Gia Kai. Thank you so much for coming on the show, and Gia. Peace. Thank you, Tia. Grateful to be here. Tell me, what's been going on since COVID started? I know it's been like slowing you down. You're one of those people that you can never, ever catch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this has been quite an experience, quite an experience. I'm in the industry that was really affected by the kinds of protocols that have been enacted because of this pandemic. So most everybody I know in the entertainment industry has had some effect. COVID really caused an upset in our world. Our company, NKSK Events and Production, has started to specialize over the last 20 some years in major public events. Mm-hmm. So of course, last March, that lockdown basically took the floor out from under us. And of course, like everybody else, we thought it was a short term situation. Mm-hmm. And our contracts were coasting along with us because they were all in March. We're in the midst of planning for the summer to kick in either May or June. Right. So we were into that phase, uh, meetings and programming activities, and then that all ceased and then it didn't restart. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last summer, downtown Detroit Parks did choose to do some restricted, chose to do some events in the parks with restricted capacities and with all the safety protocols. And we did some of that. It was a much reduced schedule, but it went well and it was. positive in the fact that we had no negative uh, reports. Nobody reported to us that there was any contraction of that infection. Good. So we did that, but again, it was very limited. I'm used to doing a thousand events between Memorial Day and Labor Day, basically May to September. Mm -hmm. And last year we did a couple dozen that many. So it was really different. And Folks kept saying, start doing virtual. And you got to get online. You got to start doing virtual events. That wasn't easy for me to move to Mm -hmm. because I've spent a lot of my time and have a lot of my values and interests around engaging people in experiences together that help to break walls, that help to create communities of shared joy, that kind of uh, shared experience still. And so it was different. I I have, of course, moved into some virtual activities. We have a plan for 
creating something that may become a regular, regularly scheduled online experience. But I was slow to that because I really, I, and it's interesting to you because people say, I can't wait till things get back to normal. Mm. Well, 12 to 13 months of introspection and a time to review. I'm wondering which parts of going back to normal are we really interested to do? We all saw that during that period, especially the first half of this pandemic lockdown, we saw some extreme examples of what has always been true, that there has always been political shenanigans, Mm -hmm. that there has always been racial injustice, including murder, True. That our attempts to protest and right these systems are so often met with violence and jail and destruction of organizations and people's lives. We the People want to pretend that Black people don't want to have vaccinations or deal with this health system because of memories of Tuskegee. But I think what we really have are some serious disparities on dispension of health care. Mm-hmm. and uh, the access to it and the intended outcomes from it. So I, do we just, you know, after having a whole year to reconsider and to think about these things, are we simply just going to just turn around and walk? Walk back and just have it be the same. Mm-hmm. I don't think we should either. I don't I think either. we can. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I'm not all doom and gloom about it. I'm really one of the, I throw parties as a profession. So I'm really about a good time and about that creative, positive outlook. But I think creatively and positively, we can do better. Mm-hmm. And if we intend to do better, then more than likely that'll be the result. That is true. Because action follows intention. How did you get started with all of this production stuff? Because I, I hear that you were in uh, film school at, at one point. And I mean, so tell me about some of your beginnings. Are you from, are you a native Detroiter or are you an import or? <laughs> <laughs> Am I new or old? <laughs> so uh, luckily, I, luckily I get to be old. I don't know. But anywho, uh, yeah, I was born and raised here in the city of Detroit and uh, spent all my formative years here. Went to uh, Cast Tech and graduated there and then went to Howard. Big CT. And, you know, so many of your compadres Mm -hmm. are Cast Tech alums. I luckily was in school with so many of them. Kevin Tony and Kamal Kenyatta. I was there when Harold McKinney came to help the musical students create a jazz ensemble. And he lent his professional skills and his resources to help build that and maintain that. And, oh, I'm looking right at his face. The brother who is Stevie Wonder's uh, musical director. Oh, Greg Fillingames. Oh, Greg Fillingames. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. And Sylvester Rivers, who was an outstanding violinist in high school and has gone on to a great career. And Shahida Nurullah. Mm-hmm. And just so many. I'm sorry to misnames of people who are so great and are wonderful people and have been great friends, but they all know there are just so many were there. And I, I, I was in health and welfare. 
because I had determined I was going to be a social worker or a minister or something. I, I was raised into a service consciousness and have the spirit for service. And so I was looking for how to do that without becoming a minister, which was, I have a lot of ministers in my family too. And that was being pushed. I see. Yeah. So then I went to college. I went to Howard U and I moved myself out of the honors program with a pre-law focus into film directing as my major and broadcast journalism as a minor and really found myself there. That that right there is a, that's a major shift. Yeah. Like what happened? (laughs) Girl, we'll we'll be here if I tell you that. No, we we have time. We have time. Somewhere along the way, someone said to me that you should see what it is that you do well naturally, just about what is it that you were born doing? What did you just love to do? And then also what you're good at doing. And if you combine those two things that you would probably create for yourself a a life's work that would be satisfying. Also, I had a poli-sci class where I was an eager young student and I was scholarly. So I was reading and underlining pages and I would come in and I raised my hand every five minutes and the man would ignore me. Finally, I asked a question and he said to me, you know what, Uh, let me give you some advice for you. You want to become an attorney? And I said, yeah. He said, let me give you some advice for your uh, future. He said, you come to class, you read the assignments, you take the notes, you pass the test and you'll go forward. You can't question everything. And that blew my mind. I was at Howard University. I was at Thurgood Marshall's stomping grounds. I, I thought we were there to upset the norm and to f- find out ways to free our people. And this is my altruistic a- ambitions. And he shot a hole in the, that young, I was still a teenager. And he shot a hole in that dream. So it took me through a few flip-flops and I did some traveling and looking around and figuring out who I was and what I really liked to do. And I had a friend who snuck me into the film department because he worked in the computer rooms at Howard. And I was afraid to go to the department head because I knew she was going to convince me to stay in the honors program and keep it going. So anywho, long story, I ended up in film and found my bliss. Hmm. I also came to realize over time that it I love film and that whole production methodology and that whole notion of being able to create something that people view with such focus. You turn the lights down and then you the filmmaker controls the story, controls the music controls the action, controls the lighting and its effect on your subconscious and all of that. And I thought this would be a great way to share so many of the truths and so many of uh, the values that I had learned would be helpful in life. And I was really wanting to do that because as I looked into the world and I saw the position of people who are described as African-Americans and then looked further and all the people who seem to be African are of that descent. And I just thought, dang, it, it can't be that hard to solve this problem. That's That was the naivete of, of my youth at that time. And I thought if I could just make that film that would show people what it is 
and how to proceed with it that would just, you know, save the world, change the world. I didn't have that ego about it. I really was service driven in that regard. And of course, I've grown to find out that all of us come on this planet Earth with our good intentions and we have opportunity to live out our good intentions. And we have distractions and we have missteps and we have complete F ups. And we get to shake it off, rise again, and continue on our good intention if that's what we choose. And that happens to be what I choose. So after all of that, I got into film and I was working with independent filmmakers in college and right after college. I got a job with a television station in Ohio. I realized, And it was a news department. And I thought, after a bit, it was like, oh, no, this is not in Gia. I am not here to help you glorify murder and just to make all the Black people look bad. And it was just something. And um, being behind the scenes and seeing the deliberate decisions and the editing and the, the writing that was specifically aimed at maintaining a negative image and stereotype for us. So then I came home to Detroit. And I was looking for where to fit in job-wise. Time goes by, and I see this little ad. Back in the day, we used to look in the newspaper in the classified right. section. Right. So I was, I saw this little ad that said something about a production coordinator for a special event. And I thought, I grew up in a church under my mother who did all their special events, wrote the plays, decorated, did all that. And I had grown up under her tutelage. Then I had gone and gotten this degree in production. So I said, I should be able to do that. And that was my interest. I had found I love production. I, I just love the, I love the blank page all the way through to people taking a bow in the audience, having this feeling and sharing it with you, how great they feel. So I applied for that job. It turned out to be with the University Cultural Center Association, which has since morphed into Midtown Detroit, Inc. And they were the producers of the Detroit Festival of the Arts. And so after having done a lot of work in community producing events and hosting activities and also directing youth development programs and summer programs, that kind of deal, I started work with this major festival. And that's where I really got into doing the major public events. And so I worked with that organization through 2019, 2020, everything was canceled and we'll see if anything is coming up, whether plans for this year go through. And from that, I was invited to come down when they were opening Campus Marshes Park to assist in the development and then the presentation of that grand opening uh, weekend. And then they realized they didn't have anybody to manage the programming for the ongoing park. And we were hired then and our company was given that opportunity and we've been there ever since. So I think we're like 17 years in, we're as old as the park. We've been with the park since its inception. And from that, we've been invited to do other things. And one of my favorites has been the African World Festival, which we supported as volunteers, myself and my family. We supported as volunteers from from our first introduction to it. And then I've had opportunity to be director of that festival for a dozen or so years. It Now the plan is for it to continue. And there is a new production company that will come in and uh, take that helm. 
So I'm grateful to see it moving forward. And the plan now is for it to return to Heart Plaza. So a lot of people are excited about that. Uh, yeah, so that's how I got in it. I really found that I love productions. I really do. And as I look to reinvent myself post-pandemic, I still plan to stay in that milieu for well, you. It, <laughs> What's your favorite part of that? You said you love all of it from the blank page to the ending bows, but... Is it the really coming up with the ideas and doing that kind of work when you're just writing all ideas down and and then categorizing them? Or is it getting past that point to the, let me delegate this to this person to get these 10 things done so we can get the whole production? And what is like the most exciting part of that for you? It's hard to say. I love it all. I really do. I, I just have... Um... I'm an idea machine. As soon as somebody starts talking about something, I just start seeing possibilities. And then somebody will mention one and somebody will take it a different direction and woo, a whole nother set of things pop up. So I really love the whole process. One of the things I love about production and working in production is that it allows me to use almost all of my skills and interests. Mm -hmm. I love rhythm. Mm -hmm. I, I love rhythm. So therefore, I love music and I love dance and I love how colors move across the pages. So I love rhythm. I, I was somewhere the other day and I realized as I looked around that all my contemporaries were sitting real stiff and I was in because the beat was happening. Did I feel it? What are they doing? <laughs> and then it reminded me of when I was younger, like nine or 10 or something. And I was somewhere and I saw these people who probably were 50 or 60 and they were all into this and maybe dancing a little. And I thought, oh, what are these old people doing? So here I am full circle. But yeah, I love it all. I really do. I love coordinating things. And I'm, I'm about a team. I like teamwork. Mm -hmm. I, I benefit from the accountability of teamwork. It encourages me to be my best self and to follow through, which I generally do. But that team accountability is so uh, supportive. And I love a good team. I love having done something and we all look at each other with that glow of satisfaction and knowing the journey mm -hmm. and can feel it. So I love that. And I love the art. So it's thrilling to me. I was always shy. Nobody thinks that because I talk so much, but I was always shy to express myself in front of people. I could speak. I could read poems, recite poems. I could do that portion, but singing a solo or dancing when it's not just social friends, when it's a performance and the whole audience is staring at my body moving. I, I was always shy for that, but I so admired it. And I had a have a one of my good friends, her name is Nubia Safia Sekani. Everybody called her Safia. She was a person who came from Birmingham, Alabama to Wayne State University for school. And she's a contemporary in my age group. But of course, I had left Detroit and I had gone to D.C. for Howard. So here there was a group that started to assemble and they were interested in African drum and dance. And Sophia was one of the excellent performers. She was an excellent and fastidious, such attention to detail in the research and study. The She had a desire to be authentic in presentation. So the costume, she was just multi-talented person. 
So I was friends with Safia and she and her group were rehearsing at my home sometime because I had a attic loft that was available for the dance rehearsals and I wasn't charging anything, which I'm sure was helpful. Then she would be manning the rehearsals, designing and making all the costuming, this, that, this, that. So I told her, I said, because I was shy. I, I had every opportunity to be trained under some masterful dancers because I was in these spaces all the time, but too shy to just put myself out there because I've told myself so long that I look like a duck when I try to do these. Oh, no. But I I said, what I can do is I can assist you. I can do the promotions. I can make the posters. I can emcee. I I used to iron costumes for another group. I put myself in space to support the artists who I saw were overwhelmed. I know you know the deal because you do it. Yes, yeah, true. You know, <laughs> when you need hours of rehearsal to show up and be so wonderful at what you do. Mm-hmm. And yet you also have to, re, you know, promote yourself and book your gigs and manage the other artists and, and then try to have a life to actually have a life and social interaction outside of your work. Mm-hmm. So that was how I got in. I saw that I could support in that way. And that has pretty much been what I've done over time is really worked in, to support the artists, to provide opportunities because people will say, hey, I'm looking for a group. And I would try to slot folks I knew in there because I knew such great artists who just needed exposure, needed opportunity and needed to get paid for their work so they could continue. Now, how did you parlay this into your own company and get that going? And how did you pick a team to work with you to find other like-minded people to to do the same thing for you? Because that's one of the things as an artist that I have trouble with is I need a team that is basically your group of folks that's working for me. So how do you go about doing that? That's really interesting. That's very interesting because I just had some similar conversations. One with a young man who is finding himself in charge of producing a big festival. Mm-hmm. And he thought he had a team. And so we were talking about it. Let me say that what happened was when I was with the Detroit Festival of the Art, let's say prior to that, prior to starting to do major public events in Detroit, I would do community-based events. Mm-hmm. So it was basically uh, me as the coordinator producer working with or for some community-based organization. And often that was volunteer, a volunteer kinds of positions or very small payments for the amount of work that was there. Oftentimes that came with a built-in group of volunteers or workers because if it was for a church or if it was for a community organization, or if it was for the quote-unquote African-centered community at that time, then you had an already built-in constituency of people. When I got with the Festival of the Arts, I started basically as the solo coordinator producer of my of programming. And then we would bring in people, crew, around the, the week of to carry out the functions of the actual event. As the event grew, and I couldn't keep up with the work. I thought I was slacking, but I was coming in and staying late. And then it dawned on me when I looked at some past notes. That's how thick-headed I could be. I looked at some past notes and went, oh my gosh, Angia, you've gone from three stages to seven stages. So yes, there's more to do and you need help. So then I would hire someone to come in and work with me 
uh, along the way, as well as then that week of staff and crew. When I went downtown, I had that same mentality for the downtown Detroit Parks Campus, Marshes Park, which is what we started with. I had the same mentality. And very quickly, I found out that downtown, we were going to do 15 weeks, seven days a week, multiple programming. Wow. Which, of course, has grown now into several venues mm-hmm. and year round now. It wasn't just a summer program. It'd be, it went from being a summer program and then the uh, tree lighting holiday activity to now where there's just a year round of activities at six, seven different venues under the auspices of downtown Detroit partnership. So at that point I had to create a team. So that's when we created NKSK events and production because we had to set ourselves up so that we could hire contractors and keep up with the business of that. So what are those initials standing for? Just so that the audience can, Oh, yeah. Those are just NGK. It's just my name and our family name within that. So NKSK. I always I always laugh when people ask me. So I've made up a lot of things, which I started to tell you now, but it's just our family name. And, and I did at first, I was just uh, until my children grew into it age wise, it was uh, I would just hire con- various contractors. Because down there, I had to have at least one steady person because there was just so much correspondence, so much, just all the little details of logistics and technical Mm -hmm. needs and just all of that. And then uh, my daughter came back from college and she created her company, Detroit Events Team. And so we partnered up so that NKSK basically would get a contract and have an umbrella kind of responsibility. And she would come in for the operations and logistics. Okay. And then I met a young lady, Jody, at the uh, Movement Festival. And then we hooked back up after she indicated her desire to work with us down there. So she came on as a contractor and we've worked together for a number of years. So I did have to create a small team. One of the things over the years that has happened is that is that artists have asked me, and Gia, I could use management. I could use a booking agent. But I never took that on at that time because I had these various events and it was just, it's time consuming. Mm-hmm. Uh, to put on the African World Festival, for instance, it's a lot. It's thus three days with 200,000 people and 150 vendors and it's a just a major responsibility and artists need consistent focus. True. And I know you see that. Artists need folks who can really join with them, partner with them in sustaining and developing, promoting their career. So at that time I, I had said I would do it if I could have found someone who wanted to partner with me in that aspect, which I did not. But I needed someone who could I could depend on who would be consistent and because I didn't want to let the artist down and we get going and then it's not happening. So one of the things with me is I'm I'm a little different than some people. I haven't parlayed this into some kind of major company or corporation. I didn't we don't have an HR department and all of that. It's kind of my anti-establishmentarian viewpoint about things. Okay. Probably a lot of that. And just the way I grew up, I I didn't grow up around. My folks were so, folks in our family had owned businesses, but 
you know, I was the first one to go away to college. It just uh, wasn't my interest to create a corporation. Mm-hmm. And so I really have managed to develop a lane and kind of stay in it. But that's, that is absolute, that's something that I had talked about before was if we could have created an arm to NKSK that was specific about supporting artists. I started to do a lot of things time-wise it just didn't happen. But for instance, I will contact an artist and say, especially when I got downtown for these major downtown events where there are a lot of corporate sponsors and very specific types of requirements for those programs. So I call the artist. I said, send me a link. This is earlier on. Send me a link. They didn't have a link. Or we would hire them and I would say, so send me a photo. They didn't have a photo, a professional photo. And so I thought, and these would be people who really were talented and were gigging a lot locally. And I remember a friend got a friend hooked up with an opportunity out of state and they asked for her agent and she didn't have an agent. But because of that situation, she was able to be hooked up with someone and it worked out for her. But just to say that the that's a part I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, when before, when we would ask people, even now, when people send me samples, I have this whole little story I used to tell. Like I would get these samples, and it would start off with the audience applauding, and we'd be panning this big audience, and they're all applauding, and there's a voiceover saying that this group has done this and done that, and, that, and it would go on for more than thirty seconds. And oh. I'm like, folks, I'm trying to experience you. Mm-hmm. Like, I get it. People like you. Okay, I need to hear you. And so many friends of mine who are peers in this work would say that if they don't capture me in the first 30 seconds, one minute, I got to keep going because I got all these slots to fill and I got to go through all these samples. And But I used to not only get past that 30 seconds, one minute, I would skip to a few other, if they had four uh, performances on there, I'd skip to a few others just in case what I was seeing that first time wasn't a full representation of their possibility. Mm-hmm. So that was another thing. I just wanted to show people I have a film background. So I used to say I could help people make these videos so that they are impactful and get to the point right away mm-hmm. and then surround it with whatever information, whatever other information. Now, people having sound clouds and websites, all of that is that type of thought is to help people organize their presentation so that it's impactful enough that they have a chance at being selected to participate in the programs and events that they're interested in. Mm -hmm. It's so crucial. And there's a lot of programming now that's happening online and things for artists to learn these things. The part that I've noticed is a lot of artists don't want to pay for their own education. Because you do have to take a course. You do have to pay money for that. And then those who do know how to do these things can teach other people. And that's produced their own course to teach and get paid for that. So there's different ways to do this. I think a lot of folks just don't understand what's really involved because it's always been a hobby. And Detroiters are infamous for that because we have so much homegrown talent here. I remember when I was growing up, everybody sang. It wasn't like we were trying to sing. It was We just sang. That maybe has changed now because... What they hear on the radio is different than what we grew up with. We're not growing them out of the churches anymore. It's different. It's different. It has changed the deal, yeah. Uh, but 
everybody just had some kind of talent. You're like, dang, you're really good. And and they weren't trying. They weren't even interested. It was just there. You, uh, you know, Tia, I, when I was growing up, I was always shocked by the fact that all the men, like they knew how to fix a car. Yeah. And I thought, how does everybody know how to fix a car? And I grew up to find that the majority of them were working in the car factories. Yeah. And so they were seeing the parts put together and they were able to figure out how to repair the car. So I'm saying that's similar to the fact that when I was in growing up as a kid and Aretha Franklin and Gladys Knight were rising to prominence, I was surrounded by Aretha Franklin's and Gladys Knight's. I sang with the gospel choir for a lot of years, even into college. And so I was around a lot of great singers. They would floor people. You know mm-hmm. how they used to do. They you'd start do. programming at the end. Half the people are laid out, yeah. running the aisles, you know, because their capacity to emote and to stir you up, their voice, the richness, the emo- yeah, it was just amazing. And I grew up a lot around a lot of these persons. And I was like, anyway, long story short is to say, I used to wonder with so much talent in Detroit, how it didn't get out. How so many of these people did not end up with professional careers that would rival some of the stars that I saw because these people were equally as talented. Mm-hmm. That's a whole nother you know, conversation. I'm sure that's something that you talk about with the artists that you speak with. I'm talking about it with you because right now, because I'd like to hear your take on that because it's something of interest to me, just even in the jazz world, mm. uh, a lot of Detroit artists came out of here, but a lot, some stayed, some came out of here, and then a whole bunch just only played locally. They never recorded. Unless you knew them, you never heard them. And they were world class talents so what i don't know what that is i really don't and there is a detroit sound in all the genres that come out of here there's a very much a detroit sound if you listen to anita baker stuff you can hear the detroit sound in the pop stuff then motown of course but it's just like after that there's just a sound that's very detroit i i even when i do my stuff goes into different genres because i like mesh my things together but yes, I have my Detroit sound, you know, that comes out of it because some of the band members are always laughing and say, oh, T gets in that groove thing. And then they, that's the Detroit sound. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's that's something we stand on with pride. So don't get it twisted. We're very proud of that. Life has all kinds of what the Bob Barley says. Life has lots of roads and lots of signs. But Harold McKinney told me one time that he stayed in Detroit. Because he made a conscious decision to do that. He was in, he was happening during that John Coltrane and all that, all those major names in jazz period. And he was invited to go to New York to join in with that, that level of uh, celebrity. Mm -hmm. But he said he consciously chose to stay in Detroit because one, he wanted to have a family and he didn't want to be the absentee dad. Mm -hmm. Also because he knew that there had to be significant artists in this community to keep the legacy alive and to pass it on to the next generation. So he made conscious choice. So I I have found that there are a lot of people who also make an unconscious choice. They At least they haven't said to me that they're not following up on opportunities. They are not grooming themselves. They're not promoting themselves. They haven't told me that they consciously are not doing that. It seems to me that, like you said, there and like I said, there are just so many talented people, musicians, vocalists, actors, dancers, artists, 
visual artist, the whole deal. But everybody's not chasing celebrity. That's not what everybody wants. Also, there is a character that's needed to withstand the storms. Yeah. Of, yeah of a celebrity chasing or achieved life. Mm -hmm. And so I think that people have been dissuaded sometimes. Also, there's some satisfaction, like people have a personal life that they want to be able to focus on. So all I think there's just a lot of different reasons and everybody has to uh, determine where is your satisfaction? Where is your happiness? How, you know, that I've had people say that to me. I was offered a couple opportunities to move into a more national prominence. I'm about the cultural arts. That's really what my focus is. And so much of what people have invited me to will require me to be much more about commercial arts. Mm -hmm. And there is a difference. There is a difference in content and intention. And I am intentional about promoting the culture. There's a need for, you know, there's a need for all of us to be able to pay these gas bills with Detroit's, Detroit's harsh winters. It's true. So we all have to figure out how to create that income. And generally speaking, it is the more corporately based, well-financed organizations that can really pay us at a level that removes us, lifts us out of just surviving or struggling. But oftentimes those uh, entities interests is not so much about the arts. And so anyway, it's a balancing act of figuring out how to be about what you're about and still maintain yourself in the material world. So what kinds of things would you like to see, even on a national level, if they were going to be more culturally based? What kinds of things would you like to see? I would love to see a return of the arts in a big way in the Detroit school system. Mm-hmm. And Detroit as a model or a starting point for many school systems uh, across the United States of America. But the uh, that was a huge, that was a huge negative effect on our school children and on our progression in the arts here in Detroit when that was dropped. So that to me, it would be a great start because what that does is it allows artists to be employed to have benefits, to have a steady income that they can rely on. And it also allows the students to have the opportunity to be mentored and taught by some great talent and some great people also. So that would be number one. Here in Detroit, I am I would love to see a cultural arts center that was African-American centered and open to the world that actually had a budget that was capitalized in a way that it could really be effective because that's something we miss here. I remember getting an email one time that said that they were going to have a meeting of all of the entertainment venues in downtown Detroit, major entertainment venues in downtown Detroit. We didn't have one. I'm mm -hmm. saying we as the African-American community here in a city that boasts about having this majority of, uh, African descendants in their population. And we don't have one. Look around now. We don't have one. There is not. If the, the Charles Wright Museum wasn't open to hosting a lot of creative cultural events within their 
theater. There just isn't a space that there wouldn't otherwise be a space that's focused in that direction. We don't have it. We have a lot of people who are presenters and producers of the arts, but we don't have that space. And now COVID has come in. And so post-COVID, we have to see what are realities around major public events, around gathering several hundred, if not several thousand people into one space. Is that coming back? Is that really going to be a potential? So I don't know. This, Like right now, I get so many invites to view online concerts, theater presentations, certainly lectures and uh, panel discussions. I mean, lots of them. Sure. I could spend my whole day staring at the screen, literally most days into the nights. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's, that's not really what I want to do. And it's always been true that we've had to pick and choose because we've had two different concerts, same night, same time, and you had to figure out which one you were going to attend. But now everything's recorded, so you can go back. So there, I mean, you could just be all day, all night. I want a more active participation. Mm -hmm. It's a different thing to be in an audience of people who are listening to you on the violin, for instance, and we're feeling that experience, hearing the ping of the strings and we're seeing you and we're watching you and I'm watching and I'm feeling the vibes of the other people. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden the audience will all together go, whoo, and something fantastic is all together. And that shared moment is meaningful to me. I think it's well, meaningful. It's super meaningful. And, and the fact that it you have to actually be there, that you can't see it later. It's only happening live. That's a huge thing. You buy a ticket, you sit in the audience, you feel it with everybody, you get the sound waves and the energy waves flow out to you. They bounce off of you, go through your body, and then come back to the stage and hit the artists that are doing it. And that whole cycle is happening. It makes a huge difference in how things turn out. And sometimes when I'm on stage, I know phones go off or people say something and I hear all of that. So I might incorporate that little phone ring into something I'm doing right at that moment. I might sing or use those words that I heard and say something out loud. And then they're like astounded because they like, she heard me and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> this is an interaction. There you go. So that part, yeah, it's, it's an event. It's a happening. It's not a, something that you just watch passively. That's right. And it, and the engagement is the purpose to me. I go all, I break things down to their roots so I can get lost some days, but I, I break them down to their roots. And I think about the fact that at some point in time, we were just people in the community, in the village, in the square, whatever we were on. And we had just had an experience. Positive, sad, good, bad. We had just all as a community had an experience. And someone in the community just started humming. And we felt it. They hummed our vibe. They hummed our feelings. They were expressing the community's moment. Mm -hmm. Or somebody started dancing because we all just joined in, moving around because we were really so happy with the rain falling or whatever the deal was. And we developed people in the community who said, I I could write a song about something. Mm 
And they wrote that song and then time went on and somebody from another community came through and heard that person and said, wow, that's really great. You really got some talent there. That's great. Can you come and share that with some more communities? And then things developed and it became an industry. And so they said, wow, Tia, your playing moves people. So we need you to record seven songs in the next three months so we can get a record out here. And then we need you to travel around the you know, area, if not the world, and we need you to play that same seven songs for the next two years. And that is how we're going to define you as a celebrity. And that's how you'll be a star. And that's how you'll have this great career and make all this money. Mm-hmm. And I just think about that sometimes, that the purity and the integrity of the intention at its beginning and what develops based on the commercialization of that talent and capacity. It's good to have a year off as painful as it has been for so many of us. And I certainly would never have asked to have a deadly infection be the, mm-hmm. the cause for that. So don't misunderstand me. But within that year, we could look back and look at what we've created and what we're doing. And we can see expressions on major television programs that speak to the lewdness that we've grown to, in my opinion. It's my opinion. And that's not to say that sometimes when, you know, we present African dance, that some of those same moves are made in public, on stage. I'm not saying that. But the context and the intention is certainly different than some of what we see. So sometimes it's, it's important to stop and let's think about what we have created, what we have designed for our artists to to set as their goal. Sure. I, I had a girlfriend in college and she sang with the gospel choir. And she went on through law school and became an attorney and actually became the attorney of a major city here in this in the United States. But this girl had a voice. She was Whitney Houston, Gladys Knight. She really she just had a voice. Every time she sang, she just thrilled the audience. And her mother had been a professional artist, also vocalist and piano player. And so I asked her, girl, you got that voice. You could go places with that. Why aren't you doing that? And she took me to meet her mother and her mother had been ravaged by the industry. And this is what she had experienced growing up and she didn't want that. Mm -hmm. And so she made a different choice because that's what she saw as the potential of someone losing control over their artistic decisions and then being used so that others could make a lot of money. They made enough. And she made those choices. So, ta-da. Yeah, it makes sense. You have to really be aware. And I'm glad that you said that. The choices lay with you. It's not with someone else to put the responsibility and the power of that back in the artist's hands. That especially as women, 
uh, especially as Black women, especially as Black people in this American society, that we forget that sometimes. Some of us do. That the power is in our hands. And it's not, we're not working for the man. It's not about that. Nobody's down on our, a lot of folks don't actually care. They're just like, just take care of yourself across the board. They don't care what color you are. It's not about that necessarily. It's knowing that you are responsible for you and the decisions that you make and taking that into account. Now, granted, I am saying that, yes, all these other things do exist. Racism and sexism and misogyny and and hate crime and all of that stuff exists. Yes, it does. But the part that a lot of folks, in my opinion, aren't doing is taking responsibility for their own decisions and their own actions. And that makes a huge difference in what your intentions are, makes a huge impact on where you end up and what path your life takes. So I agree with you on that, that you really have to be cognizant of what you're deciding. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, and I'm not, I want to raise the vibration and say that this, there's beauty. There's so much beauty and wonderment in the art. The other day, my, we watched a theater piece that was done online. So it's all the different frames of the actors popping in and out because they were not in the same place together. And I had a great theater experience. The, the storyline came through powerfully and I was impacted by that presentation. So that online presentation was successful in that way. And it still allows for the continuation of the arts. And I want to applaud all those people who really work hard to maintain the quote unquote culture in the arts, who really look for the quality and the meaning and and look for purpose and, and look for making a difference in the community with what they present. And that's for the actors, that's for, or the musicians, as well as the promoters and producers. There are lots of people who make choices based on the value that they place on quality of the arts. And this, as someone told me, there's a earth like a buffet. And that when you go to a really great buffet where there's just tables and tables of all these different choices, that you're not upset that all that other stuff is there because you can take your plate and you can pick and choose and pile up your plate with all these things that you really like. And that's the earth experience is to really come through and learn how to make those choices and how to satisfy one's own desires. The thing is that there, there used to be more influence by the community by the family, by the cultural traditions and mores. And that has been intruded upon by all of this various technology. So when my three-year-old granddaughter would come up and help me get online for something or do something on the cable, that goes to show there's something new going on here. Yes, I grew up watching television, it's true, but there's a new level of technology it has it has continued its its influence. It has devoured a lot of what we used to hold as decision making values. And so now there's a desire to just have a lot of likes, just to sell a lot of records. It's different than when we were operating uh, at, uh, out of a community that we wanted to turn back and have them go. Yes, that that's fantastic. 
Now it's, hey, you guys say what you want, but I'm out here and I'm the one that's going to be on TV and you're just haters. True. I mean, I think that that has seasons too. Mm-hmm. I think that when you're young and you don't know a whole lot about anything because you're young, as much as you're technically inclined on things, you still don't know as much as you think. And with time, you say, oh, well, the, what does this like do for me? So what? I got a like on Facebook. Who cares? Who are you? <laughs> you don't know me. And these things change. So I think there's still hope out there. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. And I definitely agree with that because the other part I was going to say is that as much as See, what happens is that there's a lot of promotion in the media of that which feeds the media and its desires and its intentions. That does not mean that there's not an equally sizable amount of activities going on that reflect more community, family, cultural values. That we, just don't, we just don't have a TV station that's pushing that. Or we don't have the marketing. Like you were saying, there's some really fantastic talent locally who just don't have the marketing dollars or savvy or department to really push them out there and to find their their audience so that they can grow and, and share uh, their talents. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I see where the industry really, the the mainstream industry really goes after young people. Mm-hmm. because they are pliable. They have not yet learned to discern in certain ways and they can be molded and utilized to fulfill someone else's ideas of success. It is definitely true. I'm grateful that they know stuff that I don't know because trying to figure out this whole uh, podcast thing, I had to go to a lot of different sources to Say, okay, what do I need to get equipment-wise? How is this going to work? How am I going to be able to do all of this one-woman show stuff? And it ends up being two women because my partner helps me with the transcripts. But it's still, it's just two of us. And mostly I have to book the people and then trying to make sure all the meticulous stuff that you talk about, make sure the follow-up happens, make sure that you actually got them. (laughs) Did we actually put them in the calendar? (laughs) Oh yeah, I thought I did. And then sometimes you have, just because life happens, People say, I really can't make that day, even though you had them booked for three, four months. It happens. So <laughs> you just say, okay, what do we do now? In my case, sometimes I just go, well, can I talk about to myself uh, out loud on a, <laughs> on a recording? <laughs> I haven't gotten, haven't had to do that yet, but I'm a little worried when that does happen. What am I going to talk about? Because it's, it's kind of hard. I'm not an actor. So I, actors can say, hi, my name is Jerome. Hi, my name is Tim. I can't do that. <laughs> you you will soon be able to with all the technologies that are available for uh creating characters but yeah this is uh it's it's interesting life is just interesting to me i had i remember when people used to say life is like a, a pint of good and a quart of bad or something and i never felt like that i really have to say that i've had a lot of good in my life and have been able to enjoy and look back at some wonderful memories and to be engaged in some really great stuff. Mm-hmm. And knock on wood, I, I don't want it to stop. And, and I'm a very appreciative of it. And that's one of the things I, I love about when I came home, for instance, I used to see a lot of international independent film because I was in school for it and I was in a community where it was being screened a lot. 
And I came to Detroit and I didn't see as much of that going on. The DFT, the Detroit Film Theater, had their schedule. But at that time, it didn't really involve a lot of what people would consider third world countries, that kind of thing. It didn't really bring a lot of African-American independent film uh, through. And there wasn't this computer and internet available at that time so that people could find that. Mm -hmm. So I started screening some of that at, uh, we had what we called the uh, Cinema Cafe. And we we, at that time, we called it a video coffee house. Okay. And so we sold some refreshments and thank goodness for the refreshments because that's what really yeah. allowed for everything else to happen. Yeah. And uh, people would come. And I told someone that one of the main driving forces to me creating that was that I knew that the people who came were people I would be interested to talk to and that the subject matter of the films would create conversations I was interested to be in. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to create a space where those things and those people would happen. And and we did. And it was uh, successful in that way. I just use that as one of the examples of how the arts have so enriched my life and bring me joy. I'm a Coltrane fan. I'll stop short of fanatic, but I'm definitely a big fan. Uh-huh. And I've had opportunity to put on some Coltrane events through the years. I remember we did one at a small gift shop I used to run on over on Six Mile. And Kasuku Mafia, Harold McKinney, several of the artists at that time came through for this one particular one we did. Tried to do it every year on Coltrane's birthday. And it was just amazing. In that little space, we had a basement space that we would use. And just in that little space, this was world-class presentation. That's a memory that fills me up. I remember going with Nkenge Zola, who was one of my good friends. We went to cast together and she became a radio host at WDET. Mm-hmm. And she had a nighttime uh, show and she would play a lot of jazz on this show. She prioritized jazz on this show. And uh, we went together to see Max Roach at, he was in the Detroit Film Theater, and he performed with Roy Brooks and the orchestra that Roy had created. Huh. And it was all this percussion, just all types of percussion. There was a dozen or more persons on that stage. And my daughter at the time was two years old. So I, and I had taken her with me. She did not sit the entire concert. She stood in the aisle and danced the whole thing. It was just the most magnificent. It it was magnificent. We were all just mesmerized. That 90 minutes or whatever, it it just was a a voyage. Hmm. And just the masters of percussion and sound were on that stage. Tani Tabal was playing that night. Roy, Max, and so many others I can't recall right now. Just doing it. One time we threw a concert with uh, Sweet Honey in the Rock. It was Cass Co-op's 30th, I think it was the 30th anniversary and Jesse Brown's Detroit Holistic Center's 20th anniversary. And so we came together, or maybe it was the 20 and the 10, maybe that was it. And we came together so that we could host this concert. And it was at the First Unitarian Church right there at Cass and Forest in the sanctuary. We sold every seat in the space. 
And when the concert started, closed all the doors, all these people, sis, I'm going to tell you true. When the concert ended, it felt like we had just returned to earth in a rocket ship. Wow. That concert was so engaging and the audience was so together. It was just a room full of co-mingled energies. Mm-hmm. And when I remember when they opened the door and I'm there coordinating the event, but when they opened the door, I remember going, oh yeah, we're on earth. We're in the sanctuary. We're about to go be human again. That's right. It was transfixing. It just, so I, that's what I love about the arts. I love that. I love the rhythms. I love the harmonies, the melodies, the off notes. I love trying to figure out Thelonious Monk. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I love when a dancer has such control of every fiber and muscle that their move across the stage just just carries you through a story. All of that, the paintings and I had I've had opportunity to watch somebody paint from the moment when they drew a little sketch and Gia, what do you think? I'm like, you want my opinion? Yeah. And they drew a little sketch and then I would because they were friends, I'm visiting from time to time and watching this piece grow layer by layer and details into some magnificent work of art that now gets hung in a space and for so many to enjoy. So yeah, I love the arts. I'm uh, that's what makes me do what I do. With all the frustrations, like you say, the people who don't call back, I couldn't believe I did to you what artists do. To me. But you know, the people who don't call back, the the last minute emergency, the forgotten piece of uh, equipment with the rain that messes up an outdoor oh, event, you know, the the worst. <laughs> workers who call you that morning, I'm so sorry I can't come, and all of the stuff. It's the result of it that at the end of it, every time I go, wow, next time, you know what we could do? (laughs) I sign up to do it again because I love it. I love the audience's thing. When I have people that come up to me now to recall events or performances that they attended, Mm. let me know how impactful that was. I love all that stuff. I I love it. And um, it drives me to keep wanting to do it. Well, I, I'm grateful that you keep wanting to do it. You have given me many opportunities to perform that I didn't know I was going to have. So I appreciate that very much. Man, uh, when I see a talent, I'm telling you, I, I tell people I was raised in the Baptist church and my mother was in charge of a lot of the programs. So I would just show up that afternoon, three o'clock afternoon program, and they would hand you the bullet of the little program for the event. And I open it up and see my name as mistress of ceremonies or recitation by and I would just be on the program so I carry that legacy forward when I met you and saw your level of talent and the diverse ways that you engage your talent it gave a lot of opportunities or several I'm sure we'd love to do more but it gave several opportunities to bring you and the thing is you deliver like I don't have to call and make sure that you have been practicing or I don't have to check to make sure that what you're going to bring is apropos for the situation, whether it's family friendly or if we want classical or if we want jazz or something uh, experimental. Mm-hmm. I can trust your level of artistry. And that has been one of the blessings for me 
is that one, I've worked for organizations that did not ask me to be a scoundrel. Mm-hmm. I have organized, people pay what they say they're going to pay. They provide what they say they're going to provide. And that's been a blessing so that I, I know a number of my colleagues who found themselves in circumstances where people set them up to front for things that were not true. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, I'm in a market, the Detroit talent market is huge. True. There is so much variety and there are so many people who are above the mark. They're not just average. They're above that. Mm-hmm. And so that gives us a wealth of talent and creates a wealth of opportunities. And for me now, it's great to continue doing what I've done or what I've been doing. But I'm looking for some opportunity to stretch out and to see what new innovative things that we can create, venues, events, performances. What can we create that will put a new twist on it give a new refreshed view of it. Something that stir these creative desires to really have to come up with. And yeah, because yeah. I know you guys are there. Whatever we come up with, the talent is there to make it happen. The talent's, it's true. It is definitely here. Yeah. It's definitely here. Trying to match the dollars with the ideas. And now I'm also pushing. I'm pushing for artists to work with me too. I'm saying, look, let's cooperate. Mm-hmm. You've got talent, you've got resources. I have talent in what I do. I have resources. Let's come together and let's create what we want as opposed to waiting for someone to hire us to do that. What can we design ourselves and back ourselves in and promote and make successful? I'm really very much focused there too. All right. There's projects we could talk about. <laughs> I've got one ready to go. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for spending time with me today and, and talking with me. And it's, it's so good with, to speak with you. And and online, they can find you where? I don't know. Main, mainly Facebook. I really don't do, I don't really do a lot. I find that with things that I do, that generally the people who want me come and get me. Mm-hmm. So I don't, we have an NKSK website and it will get activated in about the middle of this year when we push our new idea. But find me on Facebook or y'all know who I know. So contact them and have them contact me. Yeah, but I'm open and interested and always grateful. Uh, for opportunities just like this, Tia, to to think about what I do, to share my thoughts about it, but also to engage with someone with your creative talents. It's it's just always a great privilege and always create something nice. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Tia Time with Artist. Make sure to visit our website, tiaviolin.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes and never miss an episode. Please leave us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. We really appreciate your comments and will mind them to bring you more amazing episodes. I would like to thank this inaugural season sponsors, the folks at Jazz Lines of Bend, Michigan or JAM. Michigan Art Share, a program of Michigan State University Extension, is a partner in supporting the Tia Time podcast and Sham Bones Music. Without their support, this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much. 
If you would also like to contribute to the show, you can find us on Patreon.com. If you want to continue the conversation about topics discussed in the show or start new ones with like-minded people, join us at the Tia Time Lounge on Facebook. Thank you for listening. See you next week at Tia Time. Thank you for joining us this week on Tia Time with Artists. Make sure to visit our website at tiaviolin.com where you can subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. Please leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts to expand the reach of the show. We really appreciate that help. And we'd also like to say thank you so very much to our sponsors, Michigan ArtShare, a program of Michigan State University Extension, and Cold Plunge Records. And also all of our Patreon supporters. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. We'll see you next week at Tea Time.